I want you guys to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 25. We're going to look at chapter 25 and 26 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through 1 and 2 Chronicles. And I want to just start off by reading uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 25 verses 1 and 2 and then chapter 26 verses 3 and 4. And then I'll pray again and we'll get into the word together. 2 Chronicles chapter 25 verse 1. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. Chapter 26, verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father and Messiah had done. Let's pray. Father, we just want to commit afresh to you this service. We thank you again for our church family. We thank you again for your great love for us. And we pray, God, as we get into your word, that you would use it. Your Holy Spirit would use it to change us from the inside out. Lord, where people are watching this and they're still lacking saving faith, would you bring them to saving faith this morning, Lord. You did it for us. You can do it for them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And for those of us that know you, Lord, may we want to draw near to you today. May we be those who seek you with a whole heart. Please, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we go through these chapters, it's going to be a bit difficult to see why their epitaphs, those things that we've just read, those verses we just read, would include the words, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Amaziah, and we'll see his son Uzziah, did a lot of things that would, weren't really right in the sight of the Lord. There were things that, that they did, that the way their lives end, well, they were less than glorious. And it makes us wonder, why is this? Why is that there? And the key, of course, is in the, verse, uh, in the, in the phrase in verse 2 of chapter 25, that Amaziah did what what was right in the sight of the Lord as his son Uzziah, but not with a loyal heart. And so what we have here is a a picture in these chapters uh, of this reality that you can do the right things and still not be in a right relationship with God. It's important that we recognize this because what we're going to see with uh, Amaziah, with Uzziah, is, is that they have a problem that we have naturally. And the problem is our heart. There's something wrong with us internally. There's something wrong with us spiritually that means even if we know the right thing, even if we do the right thing, we can still find ourselves on the, right, on the wrong place with God. And so, I'll, I'll get that, Rory, no problem. <laughs> that was Rory trying to be smooth to turn off the light. <laughs> But, but, the, but the thing is, we want to see today that there is this problem that we all share, the problem of the heart. And we want to see how God deals with our hearts. So from chapters 25 and 26, we're going to see four things, four ways that God deals with our hearts. But I also want to talk about a fifth way. So let's pick it up in verse 1 again. Speaking of Amaziah, he's 25 years old when he becomes king. And uh, he, it says he does what's right uh, in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. And it begins in verse 3 by explaining how, what he does when he first becomes king. Verse 3 says, 
Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established for him that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. Moreover, he did not execute their children, but did it as did as it was written in the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall die for his own sin. Now, any, anything that talks about killing children is a bit disturbing for us, isn't it? But it's important to see why the author is writing this now, why we're, under, why we're seeing this about Amaziah. Well, what he wants us to see is that Amaziah was obedient to God's law, at least selectively obedient to God's law. We know in, in the book of Two Kings, when we read about Amaziah, that he allowed the high places of worship, the place of idol worship, to still remain in Judah. And of course, that goes against the book of Deuteronomy, against God's law as well. So, so we want to see here that even though he did some good things, so here he saw that, that these uh, people who had, who, had, who had executed his father, that they themselves should be executed. That was the, or actually a just thing according to God's law to do. But that it wouldn't be just to execute their children. And that was at risk to him because, of course, those children will grow up and want to see him killed. Yet he wanted to obey God's law, at least in this instance. And then we pick it up in verse 5, and here's what we see. Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and set them over set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, according to their father's houses, throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above, and he found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle spear and shield. He also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to Amaziah saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the children of Ephraim. But if you go, be gone, be strong in battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy, for God has power to help and to overthrow. Then Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall I do about the hundred talents that I've given the, the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. And so Amaziah discharged the troops that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home. Therefore their anger was greatly aroused against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. Now the author is setting us up for what's going to happen in just a minute. But it's important for us to see here as well that Amaziah here, he's doing something that he should have not done. So we, we know in times past that David had hired kind of mercenary soldiers like he's doing here to help in five of his battles. We know very good kings had, had, had acquired or gathered together organized armies. This is part of the job of a king. And so that was a good thing. But what's happening here is, if you remember, that, that the whole book books of one and two chronicles are talking about a time when Israel's been divided in two. You have the, 12, the 10 northern tribes who now are called Israel, who have become apostate. They have not worshipped God the way he's, he was called to. And then you have the tribe of Judah and Benjamin that are still around Jerusalem, still staying there and still trying to at least worship the true and living God. And so, so the, when, when uh, Amaziah wants to build his army with mercenaries from Israel, God sends a man of God, God sends a prophet to say, look, this shouldn't be done. This isn't what you should do. 
Now, Amaziah does respond in the positive. They give him credit. He does listen to God's messenger, but there's a bit of reluctance here. And the sense that we have, what's going on here is <clears throat> the author of Chronicles wants us to see what he means by the fact that Amaziah did what was right, but not with a loyal heart. You see, what Amaziah had is what we might call a divided heart. And God always challenges a divided heart. In the New Testament book of James, one of the earliest New Testament books to be written, it, it says this in James 4.10, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your, your hands, you sinners. Purify your, mind, your hearts, you double-minded. Now, phrase double-minded is important because in the New Living Translation of James chapter uh, 4, verse 8, here's what it says, come close to God, God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Listen, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. See, the issue that Amaziah had, the, 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 the problem that he had here was, there was a part of him that says, yep, it's good for me to be loyal to the God of my fathers. It's good for me to be, to the, to, to be loyal uh, to the God who made those, these promises to David. But actually, I also have my own goals. I also have my own plans. I have things that I want to do. And so he finds himself, his heart, divided. Now, it's really important for us to understand that, that <clears throat> the Bible is really clear that God calls us to an exclusive relationship. That doesn't mean that God says that you can't have any other relationships. It's that God says, the relationship that you have with me must be supreme so that all other relationships that you have with people are motivated by the relationship you have with me. And what happens is when we mix this up and we think, well, no, I, I, I do want to have a relationship with God. I, I see that God needs to maybe be first, but I also want to have the relationships I have with other people, with the rest of this world, with my, with, my, with my city, with my neighborhood, with my family. I want to dictate how I have those relationships. That's what the Bible calls a divided heart, where your loyalties aren't set just with God. They're divided between God and something else. And God always challenges a divided heart. And so here, Amaziah's heart is challenged. And did it respond well to this? Well, look at verse 11. Then Amaziah, it says, strengthened himself and leading his people, he went to the Valley of Salt and killed 10,000 of the people of Seir. These would be Edomites. These would be enemies of God's people. And also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive of Edomites, brought them to the top of a rock and cast them down on the top of the rock so that they were all dashed to pieces. I know that sounds horrible, but you have to understand in this day and age, in this context, this is what they would do with their enemies. Verse 13 says, But as, the, as for the soldiers of the army which Amaziah had discharged so that they had, <coughs> would not go with him to battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon, Killing and killed 3,000 uh, in them and took much uh, spoil. So, so you can kind of see what's going on here. These mercenaries that he had hired from, uh, from Israel, he sent them away with the deposit they had, which would probably be about three months' pay. But because he sent them away, they're offended, they're, they're angry. And so basically, even though they go back to Israel, they take the time to kind of also exploit some villages that are in Judah. Now, what it says in verse 14 is, Now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Syria and set them up to be his gods and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. 
Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said, Why have you sought the gods of the people, which could not rescue their own people from your hand? It's a good question, isn't it? It seems kind of a stupid thing to do. See, here's Amaziah, and he wants to go to battle. He's ready to do what kings do, which is to go out and win wars. And, and when he does this, he decides, he tries to get an army from uh, an apostate group of Israel. And when God shuts that down through a prophet, he says, okay, fine, I won't do that. He goes to war, and we would think going to war, believing God's going to help him. And when he gets the victory over this heathen nation, what happens? He begins to worship their heathen gods. Does that seem strange? It is strange. It doesn't make any sense. But actually what he's doing is this. Amaziah, though he should have known the true and living God, though he should have known the God of Israel, the God of Judah, the God of David, what he is doing here is instead of seeing the creator God as he is, the God who's over all, the God who's made the universe with, the, with his spoken word, the God who has delivered, has brought Israel out of Egypt, the God who conquers all nations, instead of seeing that God of all the universe, he is lowering the God of Judah to a localized God and thinking the way pagans thought. Because the way the other nations would think was their God was the God that was connected to their land where they lived. And so if an army came in and defeated them in their land, they would think it was their God that allowed them to be defeated by this other land. But usually the, or this other God, but usually the conquering people would come in and think, oh, here's what's happened. We've won because our God is greater than their God. But what Amaziah is doing, he's saying, no, actually our God, Yahweh, is no greater than the God of the Edomites. And I conquered the Edomites in Edom, so I might as well worship the God of the Edomites. Make this clear for us and how this applies to us. What Amaziah is doing is he's lowering his view of God because he's exalting his view of himself. <clears throat> so what happens? Verse 16. So it was as he talked with him, that is as the prophet talked with Amaziah, that the king uh, said to him, have we made you the king's counselors? Cease. You might say, shut up is what he's saying. Why should you be killed? In other words, prophet, stop talking or you're going to die. Then the prophet ceased, but here's what he says at the end in verse 16. I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not heeded my advice. You need to understand something. So here's what Amaziah is doing. He's committing uh, idolatry after his military victory. And he's doing this even though God in his kindness is trying to correct him. This is what we call pride. And guys, the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, but he always resists the proud heart. Where does Amaziah's pride lead him? Look at verse 17. Now Amaziah, the king of Judah, asked advice and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoiaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, saying, come, let us face one another in battle. And so Joash, the king of Israel, sent Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, he tells a story, saying this, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to, my, to be my son, uh, uh, to my son as wife. 
And a wild beast was in Lebanon, passed by, and trampled the thistle. So what happens when, when Amaziah goes to the king of, of Israel saying, hey, let's fight in battle. I, I can beat the Edomites. I can beat you. This is what he's thinking. What happens? The, the king of Israel says, hey, let me tell you a story. Uh, you're just a little guy. There's a big guy. You're going to get crushed. Why don't you stay at home? In fact, that's exactly what he says to him. He says in verse 19, Indeed, you, you say that you have defeated the Edomites and your heart is lifted up to boast. Stay at home now. Why should you meddle with trouble that you should fall and you and Judah with you? Verse 20, But Amaziah would not heed, for it came from God that he would give them into the hand of his enemy, for they sought the gods of Edom. Do you notice that? It says they sought the gods of Edom. What do we read back in verse 14? It says that Amaziah had set up the gods of Edom as his gods. Now we see Judah following suit and they are worshiping the gods of Edom. So what's going on? God's gonna chasten them. You see, what's happening is Amaziah's pride is leading him and all of God's people right to defeat. Verse 21, so Joaz, the king of Israel went out he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. Every man, uh, <coughs> and every man fled to his tent. So Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, and the son of Joash, the son of Jehoazah, at Beth Shemesh. And he, and he brought him to Jerusalem. And he broke down the walls of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits, and he took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the house of God with Obed, uh, with Obed Edom and the treasures of the house of, uh, treasures of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. So the king of Israel, whose, whose uh, capital would have been Samaria, he soundly defeats uh, Amaziah and Judah and actually takes Amaziah captive goes to Jerusalem with Amaziah, gets more hostages, breaks down the wall that's supposed to protect Jerusalem, takes the gold and the treasures from the temple with hostages and takes off. In other words, they're soundly defeated. Why are they soundly defeated? Because Amaziah in his pride thought he could do this. God always resists the proud heart. Now you'd hope that he'd turn, but as we're gonna see in these last few verses of chapter 25, he doesn't. It says, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoazah, the king of Israel. And now the rest of the acts of Amaziah from the first to the last indeed, are they not written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel? And after that time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem and he fled to Lachish and they sent after him and Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. Now it's a little bit confusing when you read this, especially when you compare it to uh, what we have in the book of Kings, but let me just kind of sum up what most scholars believe happened. Most would say in verses 25 to 28, actually this actually represents the last 24 years of Amaziah's reign. That what happens is the stuff that we've read previously is the first four years, Amaziah feeling like he can uh, do more than he can do, then Amaziah losing soundly to, to uh, Israel and Israel's king, and then him going into captivity. So that his son Uzziah actually becomes sort of a co-regent. So he becomes ruling from Jerusalem 
while Amaziah, though he still has a position of the king, he's out and he can't do anything. So in other words, his, his last or the bulk of his reign is a reign where he's not in Jerusalem, a reign where he actually has no effective power, a reign where he's kind of out in disgrace. And why did this happen? Because this phrase that we see, Amaziah turned from following the Lord, that phrase can be summed up in one word. It's the word apostasy. It's this idea in Scripture that someone has once believed the Lord or at least had professed believing the Lord, had professed to follow the Lord and decided, I don't want to follow God anymore. Apostasy. It's one of the most serious and sobering things to think about in Scripture. And what it did is it led to his ultimate disgrace. Now, we need to be sober about this. Because even as I said last week, I, I, my personal conviction is if somebody's born again, they can't become unborn again. Therefore, God will keep them. God will chase them. God will bring them back. There is such a thing as somebody going apostate. Whether they were born again or not born again, you can decide. You can wrestle through that theologically. But here's the truth. The Bible teaches there's a truth that someone can be professing faith in God, even doing the things that God would, <coughs> would say were the right things to do, and decide, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to live for God anymore. And that state is a very fearful state. Listen to this. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, here's what it says. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. It says, If we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth and there is no longer any sacrifice to cover these sins, there is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume His enemies. For anyone who refuses to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment would be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying... As bad as it was for someone to be apostate in the Old Testament, that they would go against God's law and they would see to, to gone against God's law and they were cut off from God's people. As bad as that was, it's even worse for New Testament believers. For those who have said, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe I have eternal life because of him. But now I'm deciding I want to do what I want to do. I'm not going to respond to God when he chastens me. I don't think God knows what's best for me in this area of my life. That kind of apostasy, God says there's no turning back from. When we say, no, I don't want Jesus anymore, then that means we're saying, I don't want God's forgiveness anymore. We are, in the words of the author of Hebrews, trampling underfoot the Son of God. We are treating the blood of the covenant with contempt. We are saying that which is most holy is just common and unholy. And the, the conviction that God brings us by His Holy Spirit, we disdain it, we despise it, and we push it away. Folks, we do that because of the pride of our sinful hearts. And we need to know God resists the proud. 
I know this is heavy and sobering words to think about, but it's important for us to realize the seriousness of getting our hearts right with God. Now, you might be listening to this at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't know, I want to turn this off. But before you turn this off, please stay with me. Stay with me. Amaziah, uh, even while he's still in exile, uh, is, is then uh, replaced by Uzziah, his son, verse 1 of chapter 26. <clears throat> now, when all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah, and the, kings, uh, the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, again, as we read, was Jeconiah. He, does what, he did just what his father does. And look at verse 5. It says, he sought God. This is Uzziah. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he, that's, that's uh, uh, Uzziah, as long as he, Uzziah, sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So here we have Amaziah's son, Uzziah, and he is benefiting from, he's benefiting from the, the, the example and the influence of Zechariah, who was the high priest. If you read the book, the Old Testament book of Zechariah, this is the Zechariah it's talking about. And so Uzziah, he, he, he's benefiting from this influence, this godly influence. And, and what happens is he thinks, okay, I see God working now. I'm going to seek after God. And as he seeks after God, what happens? God prospers him. In fact, from verses 6 to 15, we see how God not just, doesn't just proper, or prosper Uzziah. He prospers all of Judah uh, because of, of Uzziah seeking him. Look at verse 11. I'm sorry, not verse 11. Look at verse 6. It says, Now Uzziah went out and made war against the Philistines. These are the enemies of God around. And he broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabna, and, he, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal, against the uh, Mulanites, also against the Ammonites, and brought, uh, also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, and he became exceedingly strong. In other words, what this is describing is that Uzziah goes out, and he's actually gaining territories for Judah. God's blessing them. Look at verse 9. It says, And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem, at the corner gate, and at the valley gate, and he built buttresses of the wall. Then he fortified them. He built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and the plains. And he also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. In other words, what he's doing, as Uzziah is doing, as a king over a nation that has an, an agricultural society, he's investing in that society. He's building their economy. God's blessing them. The whole of the nation of Judah is benefiting because Uzziah is seeking the Lord and doing these things. Verse 11. Moreover, <clears throat> Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out by war uh, by companies according to the number on their roll and prepared by Jael the scribe and Maseah the officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of the chief officers of the mighty men of valor were 2,600 and under the authority was an army of 307,000. 1,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against his enemy. 
Then Uzziah prepared for them and for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings to cast stones. He made devices in, in Jerusalem, invented by skillful men, to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was, he was marvelously helped until he became strong. Do you see what's going on here? God is prospering Uzziah and all of Judah. Why? Because Uzziah is seeking God. See, God prospers the seeking heart. Now, at this point, some of you might go, wait a second, John, are you getting into the prosperity doctrine? You're always telling us that's bad. Well, it is bad. I'm not getting into prosperity doctrine. It's, it's, it's really clear from this context that God is prospering Uzziah, uh, not to exalt him, but God is prospering him to bless the nation and to exalt himself. God wants to show himself to the nation. This is why God prospers us. And this is interesting because this is what God wants to do with us today. This is an encouragement test. God wants to show himself strong on, on, uh, on our behalf. God wants to prove himself to us. There's this great psalm where it says, never have I seen the righteous beg bread. That's not prosperity doctrine. That's just the truth that God provides for his own. Now, here's the situation. When it comes to seeking God, God knows exactly what circumstances we need to be in to seek him. God knew that for Uzziah Uzziah to seek after him, what was going to have to happen is he was going to have to have the right influences around him. So Uzziah has, God blesses Uzziah with uh, this great priest, uh, Zechariah. God puts him in a time where he can grow, where he can do things to benefit the nation. And he does this just so Uzziah and Judah can come back and seek after him. This is the same for all people in all places. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 17, the the Apostle Paul is preaching to Gentiles, non-believers. And here's what he says. He says, For one, from one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Notice, though he is not far from any one of us. In other words, what Paul says to these people who are actually in this context worshiping a God they don't know. If you, if you read chapter 17 of the book of Acts, you'll see Paul's addressing these people who have a myriad of gods lined up and there's one altar that says to the unknown God and Paul says, hey, let me tell you about the God that you don't actually know. And he talks about the creator God, the God of Israel, Isaac, and Jacob. And in this he says, this God, the God of Scripture, this God has put each person in their times and their boundaries for one main purpose. You know what that purpose is? To seek him, to know him. Now, some of you who are watching this, uh, well, all of you are watching this, are in lockdown. And, And it's not an easy situation. But do you realize that the reason God has allowed lockdown, the one main thing that God wants to do, is to cause us to seek after him? Many of you have talked on the phone in the last few weeks and asked you how you're doing, and it's it's amazing how many of you have said to me that, uh, that you know, you're seeing that God is really calling you to seek Him more through this. And that's exactly right. 
Some of you might be watching this and you, you might not, you might still be new to church. You might still be new to the, all this Jesus stuff. And you might be thinking, I'm not too sure I believe. Well, you might not believe, but here's the truth. God has you watching this. God has you right where you are that you might seek him. You need to understand something, okay? We all need to understand something. God is not trying to control us. He's trying to get us to realize that he's already in control. He's wanting us to realize that he is already the sovereign creator of all things. He's the one who wants to redeem, is going to redeem all of his creation. He's the one who loves us and sent his son so that we can know him. And he has put you right where you are for this reason, in the same way that he put Uzziah right where he was for that reason. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And here's, what the, kind of, here's the faith that pleases God. Listen, for he, because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Him. Now, some of you might be tuning in because life's difficult right now, and you're thinking, I need all the help that I can get. I need all the comfort I can get, so I'm going to tune in. I'm going to listen to this guy gab on for about an hour, and I'm going to listen to some songs, and I might say some prayers because maybe that'll make me feel better. Maybe I'll feel more comforted. And so you're seeking comfort. That's a good thing to seek. But the faith that pleases God, the faith that God wants to develop in you, the reason God has you right where you are is that you would have a faith that would say, God, I want to know you. Now, it seems like Uzziah started this way, but the sad thing is he doesn't finish this way. Look at verse 16. It says, but when he, that is Uzziah, was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Look what he does. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 uh, priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood (coughs) King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have uh, trespassed. You shall have no honor before the Lord God. Now what Uzziah is exemplifying for us is really what I would call religion without holiness. Now remember last week, if you guys were here last week watching uh, the sermon last week, remember we talked about uh, uh, a group of people that Paul mentioned who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. This kind of parallels that. It's this idea that, oh, I'll do some good religious things. In fact, hey, why not? I'll just barge right into God's presence. I won't really care about what God says about who he is or what he says. I'll offer my prayers. That's what burning incense is like. And God should be pleased with that. He should be happy with me. That's religion without holiness. That is us thinking whatever I do ought to be acceptable for God. And all that does is put us in the place of God and bring God down to a place he's unworthy of. Religion without holiness. 
Now, before we, you, you think to yourself, okay, holiness is, oh, I got to obey. I got to say all the right things. It's much bigger than that. This is not about you doing the right things. Remember, Amaziah did the right things. Uzziah did the right things. This is about having the right heart. It's seeing God as holy. That is altogether distinct. That There is none like him. And when the Bible describes who God is, one of the ways it says, one of the ways it describes it, it says that God is love. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always been love. He is distinctly love. It's not just that love defines God. It's that God himself defines love. And therefore, when the Bible talks about holiness, it's always in connection to us loving God supremely and us loving others because that's what God demands. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, May the Lord... Make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May the Lord, as a result, make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when the Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Do you see the connection between holiness and love? See, the God who is holy, the God who is love, wants to do such a work in our hearts that we recognize, wow, God, there's none like you. There's, like we sang earlier today, there's no love like your love. And because of that, Lord, I want to follow after you. I want my heart's affections to be linked to you, not just my actions directed by you. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Again, do you see the connection? Being at peace with others and walking in holiness before God. You see, what's going on here is that <clears throat> in the context of 2 Chronicles, Uzziah is not loving God by going into the temple and offering incense. Why? It wasn't his place. He needed a mediator. He needed the priest that God dictated needed to be there so that his prayers would be acceptable to God, just like we need a mediator. What, what Uzziah is doing there is he's not loving others. He's not loving God's people. Why? Because he's transgressing God's law and setting a standard that is actually blasphemous and wrong. See, what Uzziah is exemplifying is this religion without Holiness, and you need to know, we need to understand, God rejects an unholy heart. Look at verse 19. So in verse 19, after the priests come in and say, Uzziah, you gotta get out, what does he do? Does he get, oh, I'm so sorry, I messed up? No, verse 19, then Uzziah uh, becomes furious. And he had a, a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest and in the house of the Lord besides the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to gout because the Lord had struck him. Leprosy, now this could mean a, a, a myriad of different skin diseases, but the idea here is he has a disease that makes him unclean makes him not able to ceremonially go before God. And here he is in the holy place. This is a clear judgment from God. And even he recognizes it. 
But is he humble? No. Is he repentant? No. He's just angry and scared. And so what happens, they rush him out, Uzziah, out of the temple, verse 21, and it says that King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging in the land and the people of the land. And then it says, of course, the rest of the Acts of Uzziah we can read in the book of Kings. Now, we see this ending with Uzziah. Here he starts off so good, he's seeking the Lord. But then he decides, nah, I want to do what I want to do. See, Uzziah doesn't just exemplify religion without holiness. What he experiences is the consequence of religion without repentance. Wanting to have a form of godliness but denying the power. A religion that doesn't humble itself before God. Now, I said that there are four, that we want to talk about five ways that God deals with our hearts because we all have this problem of the heart that needs to be dealt with. And we've seen four so far, but there's a fifth way. And the fifth way he wants to deal with our hearts is what we see in the person of Jesus. Because sometimes we have this mistake of thinking, okay, yes, give me to the good stuff, give me to the Jesus stuff. And we need to recognize that as serious as Uzziah's sin was here in the book of 2 Chronicles, our sin is before Jesus. Listen to this. This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, that is, causes you to sin, cut it off. If your, <coughs> your foot <laughs> causes you to stumble, cut it off. He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm that eats them does not die and the fire is not quenched. Those are the words of Jesus. Jesus spoke about hell. Jesus spoke about the serious consequences of sin more than anybody else in scripture. He didn't flinch. He took Sin seriously. If we claim to follow him, guess what? We need to take our sin seriously. If our hand or our foot or our eye is causing us to fall into sin, we need to take drastic measures. Now, we know that Jesus is using what we call hyperbole. He's exaggerating for effect. And we know this not because he's, he's not wanting to take it seriously. He's not exaggerating just to be dramatic. He wants us to see how serious sin is. But we also know this because he had said just a couple chapters earlier that our problem, our problem is not our foot or our hand or our eye. It's our heart. The problem is our heart. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 7, this is what Jesus says. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. Jesus says all these evils come from within, from inside, and they defile a person. See, Jesus isn't denying the fact that we've all been sinned against. What he's saying is, we don't sin because we've been sinned against necessarily. That might determine how we sin. But what he's saying is, we sin against God, we sin against others because we have sinful hearts. 
See, here's what we've seen so far. So far we've seen that God challenges the divided heart. He resists the proud heart. He prospers the seeking heart. He rejects the unholy heart. And if we were to end there, if, and we were being honest, we'd have to think, I must be rejected. Because I see that there still can be unholiness in my life. And I'm wondering, how is God going to deal with my heart? But listen to this. The same Jesus who tells us, take your sin seriously. The same Jesus who says that our sin comes from our sinful hearts also says this. In fact, he said this to a religious person. Listen to this. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Humans can, uh, can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Do you know what Jesus is talking about there? He's saying to Nicodemus, who he called the teacher of Israel, he's saying, Nicodemus, listen. You have to get this through your head. You have to understand that you have the same heart problem that all the kings of Israel have. You have the same heart problem that all the tribes of Israel had. You have the same heart problem that all people have. It's a heart problem that needs to be supernaturally fixed. And I've come that the Holy Spirit might fix the problem. If you were to read... On in John chapter 3, you'd hear the famous verse where Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, what, what Jesus does is He dies for the sins of mankind, for the sinful hearts of mankind. That mankind cannot just be forgiven or their sins covered up, but they can be changed from the inside. That the problem of our hearts could be rectified. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Paul writes it this way in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He says, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, that's through the person of Jesus, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. God does want us to have a seeking heart. God does want to prosper us. But what we need even more than that, what we need before that, is we need a renewed heart. We need a changed heart. We need to be, as Jesus said, born by the Holy Spirit. We look at the these two kings, Amaziah and Uzziah, and we think to ourselves, oh no, am I going to end up like them? And the good news is we don't have to. The good news is as we're hearing this, we can respond to the God who inspired it. The God who was dealing their lives. The God who chased down Amaziah, even though Amaziah was prideful and rejected him. The God that chased down Uzziah, even though Uzziah was prideful and rejected him. That God chases us down. Let's not be prideful. Let's humble ourselves. Let's seek after the Lord. If you're watching this this morning and, and this is beginning to make sense to you, you're realizing, yes, there is something wrong with my heart, that my thoughts are just what Jesus said. They're full of sexual morality and murder and malice and greed and lewdness and arrogance and folly. And I need my heart to be changed. If you're watching this and you realize that, 
then this is the time to do business. This is the time for you to turn to God and say, God, I can't change myself, but would you change me? You see, what Jesus did was enough to guarantee that you could be changed if you're willing to humble yourself and seek God to do it. I'm gonna pray with all of us right now, for all of us right now. And I'm gonna pray a prayer. And this prayer doesn't actually help, this, this prayer doesn't actually make you saved. It's not some sort of magic formula, like say these words and boom, everything will change. It's just a way to teach you or a way to help you verbalize what we hope God is doing in your heart. And so if, if this represents your heart, I encourage you to pray this prayer in your heart to God right now. Oh, Father, I see the wickedness in my own heart. And Father, I ask God that I would, you would help me to no longer resist you, that I would no longer be full of pride, but Lord, I come to you humbly and I ask, would you forgive me of my sins? And would you please change me from the inside out? Lord, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, just as he said he did. And that he's alive today. And so I pray that you would come into my life and that you would save me. And Father, I want to just pray also for those that uh, know you already, but maybe they recognize that they've been double-minded, that they've had a divided heart. And Lord, I pray that we would be honest and say, Lord, forgive us. We want our affections to be yours supremely. God, do that for us, please. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this week to draw near to you, to seek after you, because Lord, you said if we seek you, we'll find you. So may we seek you with all our hearts this week. Please, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.